Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 4. We start a new chapter today, and our goal is monumental. We want to cover the whole chapter. And so I know you've been praying for that for a while, so here you are. God's answer to your prayer. The Bible study is entitled, Sin's Desire is for You. That's a heavy thought. Sin's desire is for you. Now, James, our brother in Christ, who was also the half-brother of Jesus, warns us strongly in his letter. Listen to it. It's in James chapter 1, verse 19. Listen to what he says. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Just let that sit in in our time together. Listening on the radio, watching live on our live stream right now, let it sit in. The wrath of man. Make it personal. Your wrath, you angry in the flesh, your outburst of wrath, your out of control anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Quite the opposite. Often our wrath leads to a string of selfish and self-centered destructive decisions. And it's not that anger itself is a sin. It's not. There is an anger available to the believer that the Bible allows like to be angry and not sin. So it's not the emotion of anger. It's the selfish response to anger. In our response, righteous anger can be, truly become fleshly wrath. And so often our view of things will be tainted by our anger, which is res- intertwined with selfishness and hatred. And we see that in our text today. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Adam and Eve now, as we progress through their lives, they come together and have sexual relations, which by the way is the first mention uh, in the Bible of knowing one another. And it's interesting that word is used, isn't it? To describe the intimacy in marriage, God chooses to use, it's translated in the English, the word know. They knew one another. There is a beautiful intimacy. And you know, love is a wonderful thing that God has given to us and created for us. It's something that goes through a variety of levels and layers and experiences that were designed by the Holy Spirit. Love among friendships, love within marriage. And we find right here in the beginning the proper use of a man and a woman knowing one another within the context of marriage. And in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew understanding, to know someone is another way of saying to love someone. It's not just reserved for sexual relations. 
It's to the idea of growing in knowledge. Remember, again, in the context of marriage, remember what Peter wrote in 1 Peter. He said, husbands, what? Dwell with your wives with understanding, which is a, an intimation of the beauty of knowing one another. And so for those of you are, that are married or have marriage in your near future, you know, in marriage, in the beginning, you don't really know each other. Uh, you know a little bit about each other. You might have had some dating relationships. You come together. But when you come together in marriage and you move in together, oh, you begin to learn about one another. And more so, what happens in marriage, you begin to learn about yourself. You begin to learn, especially those that might have gotten married a little bit later in life, you, you get to learn just how much of, of selfishness was developed in your life when it starts to be touched by your spouse and how much you think of yourself and how much you live for yourself and now learning to sacrifice and love one another. But the, but the goal in marriage is to learn about one another, to grow with each other, to learn the nuances of relationship, the subtleties, the, the things in marriage that nobody else knows about your spouse, only you do because of the openness and the intimacy that exists in your home. And you begin to learn about the specific things that are to your spouse. You, I know one of the things that I learned that I didn't even know I needed to learn was the history of my wife, the history of her, how she was raised, of her home, the unique experiences that she had in her home that I didn't experience. Understanding a little bit of that so that I could respond to her better. How, so I could grasp how she responds to things. And it wasn't always an affront or an assault on me personally. It was simply her responding because this is how she grew up. These were habits she developed. These were pains that she carried that came out in the intimate relationship of our marriage. And the idea behind knowing is not just procreation, not just in sharing sexual relations in a marriage, but also growing to one another, which is growing in with one another, which is far more. And I believe the same is true in our relationships and our friendships, having patience with one another and showing preference with one another and, and learning about each other's stories and, and knowing that not everyone was raised the way you were or see the world the way you do and being able to show preference in that and learn and give of ourselves and sacrifice of ourselves because each of us were made in the image and likeness of God. I mean, think about it. Because we were all made in the image and likeness of God, even in marriage, we won't completely know each other. Even as we don't completely know God until we meet him face to face. It's a lifetime of discovery. And perhaps the Lord has brought you here today just so that you brought you into the sanctuary, brought you to this Bible study, just to, to maybe reframe some of the challenges that you've been having, that you would take the position of learning and growing and patience rather than demanding and selfishness and commanding and demanding your way all the time. It may find a beautiful open door for new ministry with your spouse, in your friendships, with your work relationships. So here we have Adam and Eve coming together and they have two children. Cain was born first. His name means to fashion or to shape or to form. And then we have Abel in verse two. His name means to breathe or breath. And it says that in verse two, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And it says in verse 3, he says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So, of course, time has passed. Cain and Abel are older. There's a lot of time packed into these few verses. But notice at their birth, notice what in verse 1, at Eve's response to Cain, she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, in the English, it doesn't immediately come out. But many people look at this text, commentators and Bible students, they look at this text and they pull back and say, Eve, in, in the birth of her firstborn, she believes that this was a fulfillment of the promised seed. It's like, here he is. Here, finally, the, the promise is already here. God has given me a man. But she would soon find out that he's not the promised seed. And she would soon find out he's not a perfect man. And we come to verse 3 in the process of time, or the word, the phrase could also be translated in the end of prescribed days, somehow, somewhere, a worship system of God was developed. An expectation from God of how to be worshipped was communicated down through Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel. Now, again, the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden prior to the fall was a relationship of, of worship, of relationship. Of course, there was no sacrifice. There was no offering. Why? Because they were in unity with one another. They, in their relation, if you can imagine this, this is so hard for us to imagine because this is not anything we've ever experienced. We, may, we, we wouldn't even come close to this experience, although we have had our times where you just go away and you go, you know what, I just gave the Lord my all. You know, we've had a little bit of, but, but I mean, if we were to see exactly what it was, what your all was like one millionth of a millionth of a millionth of percent. But, but God receives that because it's all been tainted by sin. But for Adam and Eve, no sin, no separation, no fall, no nothing. They could literally say in their relationship, they gave it their all. Before the, for how long, we don't know, but it was sweet and it was wonderful. And, and in this time period, we don't quite know, some prescription of worship was given that now after the fall, we see that God himself, as we learned last time, provided the first sacrifice to help Adam and Eve get rid of the fig leaves, which would be very difficult for them to endure. And he offered his own sacrifice to cover them on their behalf. And Abel, it says in verse 4, brought of the firstlings, or you could also say that he brought the best. The firstlings and the fat would speak of the best, and the Lord respected that worship. And I think before we move on to Cain's anger, I do believe, I do believe this in my life, I believe it for us from the heart of God, for all of us that follow him, that God does want our best. He doesn't want our leftovers after we've all made decisions and after we have made, done everything, well, you know, I'll just leave this unto the Lord. I believe he wants our best because he patterned in giving us his best. When we worship him, I mean, I'm not even just speaking materially. It's very easy to, to, to revert back to, well, you know, give the first fruits of my tithe and give my best materially. I, I'm not even, I think material giving, I think our offerings to the Lord 
come after offering ourselves. I don't think it's the first and only thing that God's interested in. It's not like God needs our money. It's not even like the church needs your money. That's not God's intention when it comes to material things. But if you, at times, step back and look at your life, you see, I have certainly seen it in my life, I want the best for me. That's a natural response. I want the best. Whether it's the best that I can get or the best that I can afford or whatever it might be, there is this innate desire for the best. And I believe that God, in bringing us new life, that desire for the best is now back toward him. And I believe he wants, I believe he deserves our best. Not just that he wants our best, but I believe God deserves our best. Okay, hold your places in Genesis. Uh, If you can, turn to Micah with me. And if you have a hard time finding Micah, just find Jonah or Nahum, if you find either one of them, Micah's going to be right in the middle. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Those are four to go together. And just in case you can't find any of them, I'll read it to you. But I want you to see this in your own Bible. It's a passage we often quote, but I want you to mark it in your own Bible. I want you to highlight it on your phone, in your Bible app. I want you to know this. I want you to, it would be even good for you and I to memorize this if you haven't already. Micah chapter 6 in verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? And I believe these are elements of your best that have nothing to do with material possessions. I believe these are the things that God requires of us. So not only does he want it, not only does he deserve it, but God requires Notice what he requires. He requires, first of all, that you do justly. And when the world, can't the world just, wouldn't the world just benefit by the church living a just and upright life? It does benefit by the church's worship of Jesus Christ. The the, the world won't understand this until after the rapture of the church. Then there'll be an understanding for those that are alive when the church is removed and the salt and the light is removed from the world and the great deception of the Antichrist comes, and the great tribulation comes in. Right now, the world just thinks the church is a troublesome, um, you know, troublesome entity that needs to get rid of. We just don't need the church, all their morality, all their hypocrisy. But it's through your life of justice and mercy, what he says next. The second one is, well, what's a, what would it look like if a church is just loving mercy? And remember, whenever you think of mercy, three words come together, right? Judgment, mercy, and grace. You always want to remember those three words because they're important to understand and remember what they mean. Judgment, when you receive judgment, when I receive judgment, I receive what I deserve. I'm being judged and I'm getting exactly what I deserve. When I receive mercy, when I receive mercy, I don't receive what I deserve. And I always like to remember, you know, you're wrestling, you're fighting with someone, they pin you down and they're about ready to punch you in the face. What do you cry out for? Punch me twice, punch me twice. No, you mercy, 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 or now in the MMA, tap out. That's all, all they could say is mercy. That's all they need to say is mercy. I'm done. Don't give it, don't break my arm. You know, no more damage. I'm done. You win. Mercy is not receiving. You're before a judge and you've been found guilty for a crime and and you know that the penalty will be 10 years. Uh, You may come to the judge and go, 
judge, I understand what I deserve. I did the crime. I plead guilty. I'm extremely sorry for what I did, but I'm asking the court for mercy. And then there's a whole host of people that come as character witnesses. Show mercy, show mercy, show mercy. And so when you and I love mercy, that mercy will emanate through our lives, which means that in the difficulties and in the challenges, we don't respond by giving people what they deserve. We don't respond by, again, simple illustrations, but God gives them to us every single day, church. We just don't pay attention. Somebody cuts us off on the highway, and what do we want to do? We want to cut them off twice. But you know the merciful thing to do is say, God bless you. God bless you. I'm not going to respond in any way. I'm not going to call you an idiot. I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not going to flip you off in my mind. I'm not going to flip you off with my hand. I'm just going to show mercy because I love mercy. And those that show mercy, those blessed are the merciful of what Jesus said, they will receive mercy. And then notice what else he requires to walk humbly with your God. And I have to say, looking back in the last few years, you know, with the challenges that we faced uh, with the pandemic and things, I'm just so proud of this church because we chose a route that was less traveled. It was super challenging and it was really hard. It was really hard to walk humbly with our God. It was really hard to participate in something that we didn't like and that we didn't, you know, you just know you're in the realm where your flesh is dying when you feel it right here. And you're like, I don't want to do this and I don't like doing this. And yet you chose a route. Our church as a whole chose a route to think of others more highly than ourselves. To, to our own sacrifice perhaps or to, but really the end result as we endure the things that come upon us like the end result was that we died more to ourselves you can only benefit from that you know that church your flesh doesn't need to live it needs to die and so God gives us all these opportunities to learn how to die to ourselves to give preferences to one another to be humble and so I believe God wants our best he deserves our best he requires our best now come back to Genesis uh, in verse 5, the offering of Cain, notice, was not respected. And this resulted in Cain being very angry and his countenance fell. He became angry with God. And he wasn't just angry, but this would be a description of the wrath of man. And as we learn in the New Testament, I mean, we don't need James to tell us this, but God thought it necessary for us to read this in the Bible. But I think common sense would tell us our anger doesn't produce right things. Often we need to give time, you know, what do they say? They give a cooling period or what do they say when you're super angry? Don't, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But the way the world deals with that, why don't you just sleep on it? Just sleep on it. Don't make any decisions now. Let it pass. Get a good night's sleep. See if you wake up differently. Of course, the Bible goes far beyond that. He says, don't even go to bed angry. Settle it before you fall asleep. And how, many, how much good that could come to us if we would just obey that more often. It's like a gift. God says, just, this is a gift. Don't go to bed angry. But he's not, he's not just angry. And we don't need the Bible to tell us this, although we do need the Bible to tell us this. He is out of control angry. This is the wrath of man. And let me just say, anger, good or bad, purpose, righteous or unright, anger is always a turning point for you and for me. Anger is a turning point. It, it's a point of decision. 
With anger, you can either sin with it or confess it. But there really isn't two, there, there isn't really more than two options. Cain will find as out of, Cain will find out himself that his out-of-control anger and rage will be displeasing to God because it will lead him, you guys know the story, for some of you are going to learn for the first time, it's going to lead him to murder of his own brother. It's going to lead to conflict within his own home. Again, jot it down in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. The Bible says, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh, your old sinful habit patterns, your life and responses apart from the Spirit, those, those actions and responses that are not led by the Spirit, that are not authorized by the Spirit, that are contrary to the will of God, contrary to the Word of God, our flesh, our normal, natural responses that are in the human realm. Now, the question is asked in this text, why did God respect one offering and not the other? And again, there's all kinds of debate on why. Some believe that it was because it wasn't an animal sacrifice. Others believe that it wasn't his first fruits or the best that he had. But I think the Bible is the best interpretation of the Bible. And we get an insight of why this wasn't accepted by God. I want to show you. It's been a while, but go over to Hebrews chapter 11 because we gain insight of exactly what's happening here as the Bible now later gives us the interpretation, gives us the commentary. And let me just say, as you guys that are Bible students and you're looking at other people's teachings, maybe even looking at our teachings here or a commentary here and there, before commentaries, before Bible teachers, let me just remind you that the Bible is always its best commentary. It is one unit. It won't contradict itself. And many times the questions that you're asking are answered by the Bible. And so notice with me in Hebrews chapter 11. And draw your attention there to verse 4. I think we get insight of what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, to which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. I believe the distinction between these offerings, above all the others, is that one came by faith and trust, and the other came by human effort. That's really the essence. We have Abel being commended for his faith, and the action of his faith, as we remember, we went through all these folks one by one in the, in the hall of faith. The action of his faith that was be commended was this offering. And so because God respected his offering, there was no faith, I believe, in Cain. He was trusting in himself. And say, so, how can you come to that absolute conclusion? Not only Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, but how he responded. Do you know, do you know you can learn a lot about yourself by how you respond? You know, you think you're doing well until you're tested. And then when you're tested and the response comes out, you may not always be happy with the response. You can learn a lot about yourself through trials and difficulties. You know, a lot of times when people go through great trials and difficulties and they become angry, bitter, nasty, whatever, you know, you know the natural response, of course, is, well, I wouldn't have been this way if it wasn't for the trial. It's the trial's fault. Or as we saw in, you know, it's the woman you gave me. It's everybody's fault. But it's not me. I was just fine before the trial. No, I, I don't believe that is biblical at all. You know what? You know what you're actually learning? What was in you all along? The trial was a revelation 
of what was happening inside of you. It didn't create it. Now, it might bring complications and some extra pain for sure, but trials, they reveal to us. They don't create those, that flesh. They don't create, you know, I would just drive into work and it's no problem. I would have never flipped that guy off if he didn't cut me off. No, you've been flipping people off for a long time. This one just brought it out of you. you you've been saying things for a long time in your mind, in your thought life, or maybe out loud. And then you look at it, oh, I can't believe it. What do you, if, if it's his fault. No, no, you know, that, that, that's, let him, you know, that, that person, whoever is driving, sure, they made a mistake, but they're not responsible for your response. <laughs> when did that happen? How, how is it their fault for what you did? And so here we see a lack of faith, a lack of trust. And it's amazing to me because here's the thing. It's amazing to me to think that each time we come to worship, like now, each time we put an offering in the box or we set up an online giving, each time we deliver food to the poor or bring something to the shopping carts downstairs for our food bank, each time we offer a ride home or all the things that we do in Jesus' name, it's amazing to me that every time we worship God in our lives, that God is examining our hearts He's not, he's not impressed by the size or the quality. He's, in, he's, in, he's impressed by the motive. It's the motives that are tested of our hearts. Again, jot it down in Mark chapter 12. Remember, this is an amazing scene of Jesus that we can't neglect. Let, let it sit just kind of in your holy imagination. Just imagine Jesus there at the temple as people are giving their offerings to God. Listen. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and listen, and saw how the people put money into the treasury. Now, don't think that's, well, they did it with two fingers or they did it with five fingers or they flipped the coin. Don't, it's not how mechanically, it was how spiritually, right? What was he examining with Cain and Abel? Was it the offerings? Well, there's an examination of the offerings, but before the offerings are examined, the heart was examined. It wasn't what they give, well, it was priority. It was why they give or how they gave. And he saw, and then he gives the example what he saw. Many who were rich put in a lot, but one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. And it's just a beautiful thing, again, through the process of our gathering together week after week, month after month, year after year, there is that relationship you have with the Holy Spirit who purifies your motives. He reveals things to us all the time, doesn't he? He reveals. Nobody might know. We learn really in a deep way with Ananias and Sapphira. He definitely examined their motives, declared them a liar. You're lying. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. You're lying to everyone else. I won't have that. And he clears it out in the beginning of the church because it wasn't how much money they brought in from the land. It was how they gave it. They gave it as liars, hypocrites. Some stay away from worship for that very purpose. It's a self-examination. It's like, uh-uh, I don't want to go there. They stay away from church because they have a bad attitude. Why, why worship? Because I'm mad. Why worship? Because I'm upset right now. But I'll tell you that I found that that is one of the most important times to gather. When you're in a bad attitude, it's good to be with other believers. It's good. I, I tell you, I, I've come to church many times with a bad attitude, and it was during the time of worship that the Lord just overwhelmed me and took away the bad attitude. It was beautiful. 
that by the time the second song or greeting someone or like the Holy Spirit used the environment to just really do a deep work in my heart so that either I could teach the Bible or I could receive the Bible, whatever, whatever it was that God would have for me. So it's the best time to come. And he searches the hearts. Notice in verse six now. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And this is where we got the title. And its desire is for you, but that you should rule over it. So God searches the heart of Cain and he desires restoration. He, he desires that sense of relationship. He wants restoration. It shouldn't surprise us. This is already the pattern of God. After the fall, who sought restoration first? God. Adam and Eve, they ran away in shame and in guilt with all this new knowledge. But it was God that was walking in the cool of the garden. It was God calling out to Adam. It was God seeking that. And it's the same today. Jesus is exhorting us to restore what has been destroyed by sin. Also, did you notice the phrase, sin lies at the door? That's a sobering thought. That in, when you open the front door of your house, there's not an Amazon package, it's sin. Lying at the door, just waiting to pounce on you. I mean, it's just always looking for an opportunity, temptation and sin, lying at the door, waiting for us to open the door. It's like sin can't overcome us until we invite it in. Not only that, look at what God's heart is for your life tonight. God's heart for your life tonight, and this is old covenant, how much more in the new covenant, that you should rule over sin. That is God's will for your life. That sin would not rule over you, but God's will is that you should rule over it. That you should master the life of abiding in Christ and avoiding temptation and walking in the freedom and the newness of life. That was God's heart from the very beginning. It is not for sin to destroy you. It is not for you to be a slave to sin. It is not for you to be mastered. And here's what happens. So many people get overwhelmed with sin and they have the same habit and the same habitual cycle and the same habitual attitudes and, and they, they go through the same thing over and over again that they almost develop. And maybe this is you. I want you to receive this. I want you to be ready for this. You develop a fatalistic view towards sin. Maybe you've never seen it this way before. That you have a fatal, and this is what it sounds like. I can't help myself, Ed. I can't help myself. It's my nature. I'm destined to sin. And even some have this false teaching today, absolutely rejected. It. It's generational sin. What do you mean it's generational? So who are you going to blame for your sin? No. All I know, if you want to call it generational sin, then take responsibility for your generation. And so the fatalistic view is just like you get old. And, and again, you get burdened by guilt. You get burdened by shame. You just think you, you, you take three steps and come back six and you're just battling and fighting and you're tired and you give in. And yet God encourages us today here way back before the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You should rule over it. And you can day by day, moment by moment. You can have victory over those areas you are struggling with. You have the right perspective that God is all-powerful. You have the right position that God 
is your father. You are his child. You have the right presentation where you give yourself wholly to the Lord and then you're going to get the right product. You're going to live in victory. And I don't want you to minimize, please church, I don't want you to minimize the little victories, the little ones. I know that you're overwhelmed by the big one, but again, what about the little ones? Like, like just for, for example's sake, you've been listening to a Bible study for 30 minutes now, and you're, you've been walking in the Spirit for 30 minutes. That's victory. And you say, okay, I do that twice a week. So now you're walking in victory an hour. Well, I do that. I've been at every service for the last year. Okay, so now you have 50 hours of walking in victory. That's two whole days, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you know, there's much more than that, isn't there? I just use just a simple Bible study, like just a simple gathering. But then there's your devotional life. And then there's your prayer life. And then there's that, the, the response to the Holy Spirit. And before you know it, if you really wanted to pay attention to the little victories, you'd see more victory than failure. You're walking in the victory of the Lord right now. It's, it's where do you want to focus on and what do you want to live for? Don't take the fatalistic view. Sin will not have mastery over you. Notice now, in verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. This is why you got to deal with it, right? Because it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. That's the ugly fruit of sin and anger right there. Anger is going to end somewhere. It's going to end in death. The wages of sin is death. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Verse 9. And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Oh, now he's looking out for himself. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So next to verse 15, again, all kinds of debate over this, what the mark was. Some is really prejudicial and really evil in how they interpret this. Let me give you a word so you can settle anybody that takes you to this verse, uh, what this mark was. Whatever this mark was, I don't know exactly what it was, but I'll tell you right next to verse 15, grace. That's the mark of grace right here. Because we know later on the heart of God toward murder, he limited any kind of revenge to eye for an eye, capital punishment. And verse 15 shouldn't be argued about what the, what the mark was in any of that. This is just the mark of grace. God's being very gracious to him, very merciful to him. He's not giving him the judgment that he deserves. And he's talking to them with these questions again, not because God doesn't know, but to draw out from Cain the necessary words, the necessary verbal assent to truth so that he might come to a place of repentance. It's not for new knowledge. The curse of Adam now is going to be amplified in Cain's life. He's going to be cursed from the earth. He's not going to see fruit from his labor. He's going to be a vagabond on the earth. And you know, Cain, if the punishment is too great for you, why don't you just repent? 
but he doesn't. Again, his selfishness reveals that he was more interested in the consequences than the sin against God. That's always a sign of real repentance, you know. Real repentance starts with our sin against God. We're not talking about ourselves right out of the gate. Oh, look what happened. Oh, look at the difficulty. Oh, you know, I wish I would have never done it. You know, that, that could be some remorse, but repentance is godly sorrow. Repentance starts with God. It starts with others that you've hurt. It starts with the difficulties our sin has created in other people's lives. Again, for your reference, if you want to write it down, you want to look and just understand and learn what true repentance is. Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture of repentance from the heart of David. Cain's upset. He hasn't stopped being angry. He wants to watch out for himself. And all we have is God's inexhaustible grace. So beautiful. How many of us have experienced the inexhaustible grace of God? Sure, we, maybe we haven't taken someone else's life physically, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He talked about murdering people in our hearts. And which one among us isn't guilty of that? Which one among us has not ever written someone off or been so angry with someone or so difficult? Like, God, help us. Help us to be broken before you. Humble, loving mercy doing justly. Come back to the text with me, would you? Verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That was the end result. He went out from the presence of the Lord. This, with Adam and Eve, they had to be sent out and kept from the garden. But Cain's sin led him to leave from the presence of the Lord. He goes and dwells in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So in his sin, Cain begins his pilgrimage, his vagabond, as a man without God, and he went to dwell in the land of Nod. Now, I'm telling you, Nod is a very mysterious place, but I can tell you this, it's often found in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hear all you guys laughing on the radio. Thank you, I appreciate that. That's not my joke, but I tried it. Come back, verse 18, verse 17. (laughs) Some of you are nodding right now. Wake up. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod with Mahujael. Mahujael begot Methusael. Methusael begot Lamech, and Lamech took for himself two wives. What? The name of one was Ada, and the other name was the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, and the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, O wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me. Oh, now we have more killing even the young man, for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also was a son born named Enosh. Then the men, isn't this beautiful? Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So Enoch, his name means dedicated one. This is the first child of Cain, and here through this man was built the first city. 
Lamech, his name means conqueror. First thing we notice is the phrase two wives. You guys see that? Two wives. This is a problem because just a few years earlier, a few generations earlier, a few chapters back, if he would have just turned the page a little bit, Adam and Eve were presented as the perfect model of marriage. God's goal. One man, one woman, one lifetime. God's ultimate goal. The definition of marriage. And so it doesn't take long for man to fall from God's ideal. And polygamy continues, even as it is later prohibited by God in his law for all of eternity. Jesus himself re-emphasizing one plus one equals one in marriage. That's the math of marriage. One plus one equals one. The two shall become one flesh. Marriage. Husband. Wife. Jesus himself teaches that God in human flesh. And so it's not uncommon for the enemies of the Bible to use this as an attack of the morality of God. And it sounds a little bit like this. How can such a moral, upright God condone such immoral behavior? And the answer is very easy. He doesn't. You flip that right around. And so first of all, just ask somebody, where in the Bible are you referring to? That's going to cover 99% of the critics. They don't know where it is in the Bible. But if they happen to know, well, right there in Genesis with Lamech, how, how can he have two wives? God approved of that. The next question is, where does it say that exactly? Where does it say that? It doesn't. God doesn't approve it. What the Bible does, and we'll repeat this over and over again. Here's what the Bible does. The Bible for, records for us factual statements. Things that actually happen. So what God is saying here is not that he approves of polygamy. What is he saying? That there was polygamy. He doesn't approve of polygamy any more than he approves of murder, even more than he approves of any of the sin now that will be the rest of the Bible. It's just filled with sin and redemption, sin and redemption, sin and redemption. The difficulty of man. And Cain now becomes a society separated from God's plan. And he has the father of tent dwellers and ranchers and Jubal, Jabal, verse 20. He has the father of musicians and entertainment. And that's Jubal in verse 21. He has Tubal Cain in verse 22, the father of iron workers and metal workers. And then notice what Lamech does in verse 23. He brags about his own sin. So now he's bragging about, well, you know what I did? I murdered. Somebody injured me and I took vengeance on myself and I murdered people. And now they're just flaunting it. And we, we, have, such a, we have such a difficulty in our culture of sin being flaunted. And, and, and for good reason. For good reason. But it's nothing new. Men and women have been flaunting their sin from the beginning. It didn't take long. It's when you choose to live apart from God, believer or unbeliever alike, now, the believer that lives in sin is a little more crafty in how they flaunt their sin. They're a little more crafty in how they participate in their sin. But nonetheless, it's the same result. And from chapter 3 to 4, reread them, just kind of meditate on these chapters, you see a very rapid increase in sin. Not only rapid in its spread, but also rapid in its influence and how it changes the core of a person. We have an interesting warning as we close here today in Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, verse 11. It says, woe to them. 
Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The way of Cain is godlessness, unbelief, empty religion, jealousy, rage, murder. And what does God do? Not only does he show grace, this is the response to grace. The response to God's graciousness is sin continues to increase. But just when Satan thought he had gotten rid of the godly seed, Abel, and thus the line of Messiah should be born, God raises up another line through this man named Seth. Again, his graciousness. Seth literally means compensation. And it was through Seth that now men begin to call on the name of the Lord, verse 26. And perhaps today you can just thank God for the person that introduced you to Jesus because it was through that person that you began to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that cool? I mean, to me, it's just so cool. I think of my buddy Jack. I mean, I think of my parents too. I think of my, God's going to reveal all these people he put in my life. I, but I think, of, I, I think of my buddy Jack. He's the one who invited me to church. I began to call upon the name of the Lord. I, I think of my little boy, Eddie, when he was coming home from this daycare. Marie and I are lost as lost could be, but we dropped him in this Christian daycare and he would come home saying, Daddy, do you have Jesus in your heart? I'm like, man, what are they teaching you there? What is happening? But it was through him, through my son, who was born to us as teenage parents, lost as lost could be, that we began to call upon the name of the Lord. I mean, think about the people in your life that God used in your life, that this, like Seth, you started to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that great? It's just so good. It's so wonderful. And, and, so thank God for them, and go ahead and copy Seth, would you? Start to introduce people to Jesus so they too could call upon the name of the Lord so that they too could be redeemed by the grace of God. So they too can have a life-changing transformation from the inside out. It's when we come to that place of recognizing and appreciating God's great love for us that we too call upon the name of the Lord. We love God, the Bible says, because he first loved us. And it was through the gift of God to Eve through his grace, through his compensation, through Seth, that hearts were turned toward him. So Father, we pray for that redeeming work in our lives today. We pray, Father, that you would indeed not only give us great appreciation for the men and women in our life, that through them and through their line, we now call upon the name of the Lord. And may we forever call upon the name of the Lord in the good times and the bad, in the challenging times, in the happy and the sad, through the, the different detours that life brings, the challenges, the successes, may we always be men and women that call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they find safety, strength, and protection. And God, I pray as well that we too would be the godly line of Seth. Even one is greater than Seth. Messiah, Yeshua, who we call upon and we live in. And we would find great refuge. And I pray for those that are just overwhelmed by guilt and shame that have taken now a fatalistic view towards sin, that you would release them, Lord. 
that you would free them from the shackles, that, God, you would remind them, you would show them, you would remind and reveal in their minds, reveal in the Word, reveal on a bumper sticker, wherever you need to remind them of the victories over and over and over and over and over again that would drown out the defeats. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.